You're tuned in to the Curated by Podcast. Welcome to the 10th installment of the Curated by Podcast. Today we have a guest who we know very well. He was the second, uh, and I think best, curator. And we hosted two sold-out label nights with him during Amsterdam Dance Event on Thursday, October 20th. Uh, we'll host a North Border label night uh, once again. This time in Melkweg's upstairs room called Up. This is the place to be from around midnight. Welcome, Thaye, to the podcast. Thank you. Hello. Um, I'm the host, uh, Rick, together with Maarten. And hello. Uh, hello, Maarten. Uh, before we get into the tick of it, uh, we'd like to start off by asking you 10 quickfire questions, which you have to answer with the first thing that pops up in your mind. All right. Are Let's you ready? You okay. ready? I'm, I'm ready. Um, Fabio or LTJ Bookham? Uh, Fabio. Oddest thing to ever happen during a set? Uh, when the club was raided by about 10 guys in balaclavas with submachine guns. Okay. <laughs> What? How did you react to that? <laughs> um, I was uh, quite shocked, obviously, and I actually froze because I didn't really know what was happening and thinking back it would have probably been a similar scenario as maybe like a a terrorist attack or something but I just really I didn't really know what was going on and then the guys shoved me and turned the music down and started parading up and down the stage and everything um, but then the promoter came up to me and he said you know this is normal this happens all the time <laughs> so I was like okay and I just chilled out for a bit and then When they left, uh, they asked me if I wanted to continue playing, and I did. And then the yeah. party was really live after that, as okay. you can imagine. Was Very it good. because they didn't have the right um, permits or something? I really don't know. I really don't know. But they <laughs> came and, you know, they they checked some people in the crowd and kind of did their thing, and it was kind of, yeah, something that I'd never experienced before and never have since, but it was pretty crazy. Yeah. Okay. Sounds intense. <laughs> yes, it was. It certainly was intense. Um, third question. Best restaurant in Amsterdam? Oh, damn. Best restaurant in Amsterdam. Um, wow. I'm trying to think. Uh, my Probably the place that I go to the most often uh, is Golden Palace. It's a dim sum place. Um, I don't know if it's the best, but it's probably my favorite. Okay. Yeah. Um, biggest musical inspiration outside of drum and bass? The biggest music... Oh, damn. Um, probably RZA. Okay. Producer from the Wu-Tang Clan. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it's quick fire is the first thing that comes to mind. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I love his productions. Uh, rising star of the future? Uh, Settle. Settle. And outside of drum and bass? Ah, uh, outside of drum and bass, man, you're really putting me on the spot here. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I really don't know. I'll be hip -hop, to... Hip-hop artist? Uh, Larry June I like a lot. Um, I've been listening to uh, Domi and J.D. Beck. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. Very Those good. are kind of two things that come to mind. Okay. 
best performance ever seen at Sun and Bass? Probably Children of Zeus. Yeah, cool. Were you there, Maarten? Yes, I was. <laughs> I was in the crowd, for sure. Uh, Leiden or Amsterdam? Oui. <laughs> do I have to pick something? Yeah. Give me a draw? <laughs> I do. Man. The, right now, Amsterdam. Amsterdam. I'm done with Leiden. Yeah. East or West Coast hip-hop? East Coast. Best rave ever visited? Um, again, I don't know if it's the best, but the rave that had the most influence on me was when I went to the Blue Note, because that was the first time I went to a drum and bass night. It full stop, you know, and just kind of experience, experiencing it in London. Uh, when I was still quite young, I think I was 19, and I was seeing like all these kind of already legends then, like I think Doc Scott Groove Rider played. And uh, just hearing it at loud, a loud level, you know, because I'd been listening to it prior to that, but I'd never heard it loud in a club. So that really made a massive impression on me. And I think it changed my life, you know? Okay. And uh, was it Sunday night? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Blue Note. Blue notes. Um, what job would you have when you didn't have a music career? Um, well, before I had a music career, I was working in advertising. Mm. So maybe that or maybe cooking in a kitchen or something. Because I enjoy cooking. Nice. But it's not something that is probably very enjoyable. It's long hours, very stressful. So probably more advertising, thinking yeah. about it now. I'd like to add one more question. What's your favorite cuisine? Wow, that's also very difficult. Um, probably Japanese, if I had to pick one on the spot, just because it's very diverse. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah. That's like, a hard question. It's very hard. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, that that's the 10 questions, I think, Rick, right? Yeah. That's it. Yeah. All right. Uh, thanks for your rapid answers. Um, to kick things off, uh, we'd like to take you back to when you started out in the scene. Uh, we, would like to, we would like to know a bit more about Tai as a person. So for the people that don't really know you, uh, could you describe yourself in three sentences? In three sentences? Um, wow. Uh, furrow. Um, like I said, this is not words. Yeah. In three sentences, oh shit. Uh, <laughs> I guess I'm, I'm just, um, I'm a kind of a perfectionist. I like getting stuff done thoroughly uh, with attention for detail. Yeah. Uh, and I'm someone that uh, is quite sensitive, emotionally speaking, in terms of all, all kind of aspects of life, like uh, with, with how I approach music as well. Uh, and then lastly, um, uh, yeah, I really like diving deep into things, you know, uh, yeah. music especially, but yeah, if I really like something, then that's something that I can really dive deeply into. Yeah. Oh, nice. So uh, going back in time, uh, where did you grow up? Uh, so I grew up in Leiden, the North Quarter. Um, Near yeah. the Hague, right? Sorry? 
It's near The Hague. It's near The Hague. It's about 10 minutes on the train from The Hague. It's a small city. It kind of... I guess it's like a mini Amsterdam. Yeah. Architecturally speaking, uh, it's got a really big student population uh, and a big working class population as well. And I grew up in a working class neighbourhood and, you know, it's still pretty much the same as I remember it if I walk around there now. Lots of little brick houses, two storeys. Uh, and I was born in the house I grew up in, Prinsenstraat. And, um, yeah, my parents split up when I was quite young. Uh, and eventually, when I was four, my mother moved to the UK and I uh, stayed in Holland and grew up with my dad in Leiden. Um, and in my teenage years, um, I first kind of got really into music. Um, first of all, it was more like, I guess, like some rock stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but then um, I got into the same class as Dan Steezel when I was 15. And he was already really into hip hop then. Uh, and I had had experiences with hip-hop before, you know, like LL Cool J, even in primary school, for example. De La Soul, Soul Tribe Called Quest before. But he was, like, really into hip-hop. Um, and he introduced me to it through mixtapes that he made for me. Um, and I really fell in love with hip-hop really quickly. Um, we're talking, like, 93. Yeah. Um, and I just, you know, I just started buying CDs and there used to be this rental place in Leiden uh, that rented CDs, CD special. It's probably very illegal thinking about it now, but, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they would rent like a CD for two guilders, which oh, is yeah. about like one euro a week. Yeah. You know, and I would just go there and rent probably like four or five CDs a week and just tape them. Uh, and I would just do that every week. You know, and they would buy all the latest CDs and just rent them out to to everyone. They had a massive collection. The guy that worked there was like a big hip hop head as well. So my collection, you know, it turned into like ten shoeboxes full of <laughs> TDK tapes with like hip hop albums uh, and also CDs and stuff that I was buying. And this was all happening in in Holland. And meanwhile, I was going to see my mother on holiday. Like every holiday, I was in the UK in Dorset at the time um, and my friends there were really into uh, house and techno and the free party scene in general there was a lot of free parties going on Spiral Tribe um, DIY stuff like that they were really into and I was kind of fascinated by the turntables um, mm -hmm. and I would attempt to mix house and techno just because you know because the turntables were also important in hip hop. But it wasn't until they started getting getting into Jungle that I was much more uh, into what they were playing because it just kind of reminded me of uh, hip hop in a way, you know, the same kind of... They were using a lot of the same break beats. It was just a different tempo. But the structure and the attitude was very similar for me. Um... And also, like, even before that, I forgot they were listening to, like, hardcore as well. So I was just... in the Netherlands, yeah? Not in the Netherlands. I was actually very... 
well, I don't know if I was very opposed to it, but, you know, like, hip-hop was kind of the opposite of, like, the hardcore and Gabba stuff. Yeah. And I had, like, my nephew was into it and I had a friend that was into it. So it wasn't like they were mortal enemies or anything like that, but it was, like, it was just, like, uh, as a... Um, a cultural phenomenon, it felt like the exact opposite of what I was about at the time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this jungle stuff I was really kind of into. And uh, I had like some LTJ Bookham tapes. Uh, we're talking probably 94, 95. And then in 96, I got so into it, you know, and they were, they were um, buying a lot of records then. And I was mixing it and it was, I was relatively... Uh, successful at mixing, I guess. Well, not really, like, compared to now. You know, we're talking 10-minute ten, ten songs and I would manage to, like, mix the intro into the outro of a song, so it'd take me about <laughs> 10 minutes to beat match the, the tracks. But, you know, eventually I got more and more into it and I got really hooked uh, and I started buying records of my own. You know, I had, I had some hip-hop records, um, but nothing really like a collection, but uh, yeah, probably 96 or 97. Um, I started buying drum and bass records and I didn't really look back. And you know, this is a time before widespread internet. So I came back to Holland with some records and I searched out places to buy records in Leiden to start with. And did, I went to did they sell drum and bass back then? Yeah, Velvet. Sold drum and bass and Plato and Blad Oof. Um, but it was like a very small segment, you know, section. So I would have to choose what I bought from about 50 records. So I didn't have, I was kind of at the mercy of whatever the shop bought. And yeah. I don't, I had no idea how that happened, you know, if they actually were into it or if if they got pushed these records. But I remember buying, you know, some prototype stuff, um uh well, some good looking stuff, metalhead stuff. So there was some good stuff, but I also bought some really bad stuff because there was nothing else, you know. Yeah, everyone does that. Yeah. Everyone who collects vinyl makes yeah. mistakes. <laughs> and then uh, you know, when I visited the UK I had friends that we're in London, so I would go to Black Market or Section 8, or Section 5, which one what was it? Does anyone know? I think Section 5 or 8, I can't remember, it's a moving shadow shop. Um, and just different places in London, but mainly Black Market uh, and record shops in Dorset as well. In Yo I went, used to go to Yeovil sometimes and Bournemouth. Uh, it's uh, section five. Section five. <laughs> yeah. Good googling. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I can't remember the name of the record shop in Bournemouth. I think it was owned by Aquasky. Uh. Um. But yeah, you know, I was just buying records and trying to get gigs, and I I was just recording tapes, you know, and yeah, I didn't yeah. have techniques. I had like these really crappy. Um, turntables I don't I don't even know where I got them they didn't have um, pitch control on the side they had like a little dial on the front and it was tiny and I was somehow I was managing to mix on this thing so I kind of felt like if I can mix on this I can mix on anything um, 
yeah, and I, I, I did some tapes and I was going to LVC a lot and there was a Friday night thing which was an eclectic night playing kind of alternative music. So it'd be like some rock, some, some like break beats, some hip hop, some drum and bass, some house techno stuff. And it was DJ Angie and she would play every week. And eventually, after many times of asking, you know, she, um, she would let me and my friend play like the drum and bass segment that she would do so I'd go, go on for like 20 minutes play some drum and bass and then she would go back on and play some stuff uh, and there was like a, a squat bar called Bar Embos and I got booked to play drum and bass there and when I turned up I think I probably only had like a about 80 records or something huh. and, they, and then when I turned up it was like oh you got to play all night <laughs> would so, you would you cons- uh, consider that your first actual gig? Yeah, that was my first actual gig, and yeah. I had to play like yeah B sides of everything, and probably played some stuff twice. But that, you know, I was kind of just um, getting my first kind of club experience then. And yeah, yeah, and then it, I guess CDs came along, and it was easy to kind of record CDs. Um, from from your computer or something. I can't really remember the timeline exactly. We're talking like 98, 99. Yeah. So it's safe to say you were a producer, uh, DJ at first. Yeah, although I was actually producing a little bit at the time. I actually completely skipped that. I used to be a rapper. Sorry about that. Right. <laughs> were you now? <laughs> what was your was artist's name? Lensman. Oh, oh how, nice how, how, how did you come up with Lensman? Um, I've got a lazy eye. And when I was a teenager, I was really into mangas, uh, like Ninja Scroll and yeah. Akira and uh, Ghost in the Shell and everything. And there was a manga called Lensman, based on these old, old science fiction novels, and actually it's not really my favourite manga. But I have a lazy eye, and uh, you've got like Method Man and Red Man, so I just thought like Lensman... It's like uh, something that maybe suits me. Yeah. Uh, and I thought it sounded cool, so I used it. And then I never really changed it after that. But oh yeah, I was in a uh, in a hip hop group with Dan Stizo and a few other people. And I was already developing an interest in production through that because you know I I was just rapping, but the guys the guys were uh, making the beats, and I was you know looking at it and messing around with it uh, and they used to use Cubase with like an Akai sampler and some other stuff and I was kind of like this is so early on and back then I had no money you know I was like and all the money I did have I was spending on records or cassette tapes or CDs um, and back then being able to write music in a professional way uh, you just needed a studio and it was really, really expensive. I just didn't have the money. Um, so I had a few people that had like bare bones studio or bare bone way of writing music. Like a good friend of mine, um, he just had like a Korg synthesizer and an Amiga, you know, and uh, he used to use Octomed, which is like a, a 
tracker which goes down so you're basically filling in cold and i still i have no idea how he used it but you <laughs> put in all this cold and it just turns into a song you know and we were trying to write drum and bass because he liked drum and bass um but it yeah i've got this stuff on the tape somewhere and i haven't listened to it in probably since we made it so i'd be quite interested <laughs> to see what it sounds like but you know, we were it's nowhere near any kind of professional sounding thing, and I had some other friends that had, you know, similar basic setups, and I was just experimenting with writing music. But yeah, it just sounded like shit. Yeah, really, it was more like about getting the ideas down. When was this? Which what year? Uh, this is. Kind of as soon as I got into drum and bass, so we're talking 97, 98. Okay. Yeah. Um, and for me, production didn't get a bit more serious until I got like a PC uh, and when technology kind of developed in a way where you could uh, make music on a computer only, you know because I just didn't have the money at the time to to buy like samplers and big synths. So I started out in 2000 or 2001 using using Fruity Loops, which was like, you know, kind of advertiser software that anyone can understand and use. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, I just, that's because that's when I kind of had way more time to invest in kind of honing my craft because then before then I was always depending on going around someone else's place yeah. and working for a couple of hours with them. And then, you know, when I got this computer, I could just spend as much time as I wanted. Yeah. And simultaneously, time wise, the internet had exploded. There were internet forums dedicated to drum and bass, uh, and I was meeting the scene you know in holland through that yeah shout out dogs with assets yeah because i didn't know anyone before then and they shout out really dmb forum in the netherlands no 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 no. before that it was dogs yeah. and acids yeah oh, okay. i met i met people through dogs and acid in 2001 cut off and moss and we started a promotion thing called future research and back then I think drama based forums like a couple of years later, maybe three, four years. Yeah. No. Yeah, really. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was I was well maybe maybe not that much, but no, that I definitely period, I think like two thousand two, three, four, yeah. I started promoting in two thousand one and I think uh DMB forum was all already there, or not? It could be, but maybe I just didn't know about it. Oh. For me, it was um, through Dogs and Acid, I met these two guys, and they both lived in Amsterdam. And that's when I was kind of introduced to the scene in Amsterdam. RDJ, for example, and, um, damn, what's his name? Andy Hayes? Yeah, from... Uh, he did uh, parties in... Um, Matzo? Matzo, yeah. Yeah. Like a weekly, big yeah. weekly night. He always yeah. had international acts and stuff. Um, and actually, the first guy to—I don't know how how I got um, a mix to him actually—but the first guy to book me outside of Leiden was Harsh. 
in uh, speakers, and he had a night called Jungleism. And this is, I remember coming back from the UK and I'm buying Just a Vision remix on promo. Oh. And when I came back, that's when I had the gig and I felt like, a, like I felt like the big man, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I've got this sick remix. It's a tune then. It is, it's a tune. It still goes um, off. But yeah, uh, he booked me for the first time and then in quick succession after that, I, you know, it was when I started meeting people in the scene, I was just handing out CDs to everyone. And Adi J booked me at uh, Hotel Arena, I think. And then uh, Andy Hayes booked me at Matzo and the ball just started rolling. I start, And that's when I kind of discovered Killer Cuts as well in this era. You know, and Nubian and Mac were working there. And I used to go, and then, you know, things just started, there was like a snowball effect. Yeah. And I was there every Saturday waiting for the promos and I was meeting everyone through this and I was going to all these nights everywhere, meeting the whole kind of scene. And yeah, just starting to play all throughout Holland really and doing my own nights. Where did you start with your own nights at the LVC in Leiden? No, my, fir my first night was uh, Future Research with Moss and Cutoff. And we used to do that in Oki uh, in Amsterdam, which okay. is on uh, Amstelveenseweg, just by Vondelpark. Okay. Um, it's like a squat type of situation as well. I don't know what it is now. But, you know, they gave us a shot and we did quite a few nights there and we booked um, a lot of people from the scene, you know, like Pressure, Martin, when he was still DJ Pan. Um, man, I can't remember everyone we booked. We've got a flyer somewhere. It's, uh, is it, it's okay, is that OCCII? Yes. It's still around. Still around, is it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then we also did a Sunday thing at a kind of bar dancing thing called Twisted, which was owned by... Yeah, it's near... was near Paradiso. Yes, Wetering Circuit. yeah. Yeah. It's owned by someone that was big in the dance scene, and it was like a DJ cafe, yeah. and a lot of kind of famous people from the Dutch dance scene used to DJ there, and we had like a Sunday night once a month... You know, I don't know. It wasn't really something. It was just people sitting around and other people DJing. Uh, and that's when I met Mike Engine, actually, because he moved to Amsterdam and he did... The, he started doing the flyers for us for there. And, it, you know, he was a big deal because he was doing the artwork for subtitles and metalheads. Um, and, I get, yeah, we became good friends and he started doing the artwork for that stuff. Damn. I mean, this is, this is so much history. I, I, I'm just waffling on and on and on. That's okay. Um, and then me, Moss, and Moss was good friends with the Blacks and Empire guys. Um, and we became residents at Blackout when they started doing Blackout, which was probably 2002 or something. Are those guys still around, uh, Moss and Offset? I haven't, still in the in, I haven't seen him in a long time now, unfortunately. Uh, the last I I saw Moss at 
a blackout when I played uh, at T4D a couple of years ago. Um, I'd like to say about three, four years ago. That's the last time I saw him, and cut off the last time I saw him was in Prague because he was living there. Because he'd studied Eastern European studies. Um, yeah, and then, you know, doing a lot of shows around Holland, simultaneously still trying to write tunes because at this point I'd realised, you know, I'd stopped rapping probably about 2000, and I'd realised that, uh, you know, if I wanted to make it in, in drum and bass, I really needed to be a producer. Yeah. Uh, and Blacks and Empire guys helped me with engineering a couple of tunes that I'd done. So when when did you realise that you had a feeling for using music? I didn't. I didn't really have a feeling that I. I didn't really feel like I had a feeling for it. Um, and then I was actually ready to give up music production because nothing was really happening. And I reckon about two thousand and four. I felt like I'd given it all a shot for as long as I could afford to. Yeah. And I kind of was done with... I wasn't really making music anymore. Uh, I was probably still DJing. But, yeah, I'd kind of decided to put it all on the back burner for a little bit. And then... <laughs> AIM was already kind of around and I was using AIM. And then suddenly, LTJ Booker and Nookie started playing one of my tracks... Oh, really? And that really changed everything for me in terms of my drive. Uh, because, yeah, as I say, I was, I was ready to give up. And somehow, them having some interest really kind of pushed me to go crazy. Um, and Nuki signed that track they were playing. It's called Visionary, and it came out on um, Strictly Digital in 2005. Was that your first ever release, or...? Did yeah, you release anything so before that? No, no, no. It's a digital-only label as well. And then um, 2006, I had maybe... I had, I had, like, another tune, Cold World, and also a release with Switch on one side and another by myself, and that one was released on vinyl. And Nookie took me on a little tour of Poland, uh, 2006 or seven. You know, and suddenly everything started happening. I was signing tunes to Spearhead. Not long after that, um, Integral, um, New Directions, which was kind of like a an established liquid. <laughs> I hate that word, but like a liquid label. Um, what else was I releasing? Yeah, like Critical, CIA. <laughs> And shortly after, Solar and Metalheads, and then, yeah, just kind of snowballed. Metalheads offered me an album deal, and the rest is history. Do you remember when you first got your break abroad? Uh, well, like when Lucky took me to Poland for two weekends in a row, so it was like four shows in Poland. Was that also your first gig abroad? I... I can't remember, actually. Dan Stizo and I also went on tour in Asia in 2006. <laughs> Off the back of one one digital track, can you believe that? <laughs> <laughs> That's quite sick. Yeah. 
Yeah, we played in uh, Thailand. Shout out to uh, uh, DJ Dragon. Played in uh, in Hong Kong. Shout out to Cookie. And played in um, Singapore. Shout out to Clark. And uh, yeah. That's sick. There were six shows as well. Yeah. Uh, and I probably played in the UK prior to that, just through friends and everything. Yeah. Not, not any kind of club. And then uh, LCJ Book and booked me at Fabric, probably 2007 or 8, I'd like to say. And just based off of, you know, these tunes, I started getting, like, metalheads having interest. Like Marcus booked me at Solar a few times. Uh, I started getting the metalheads bookings and, you know, just throughout Europe and stuff. And it just... Yeah, it started really... I had a tune on Focus as well that was popular uh, in, in 2008 or nine. Yeah. yeah. It, and it just started snowballing, really. Um, I think 2009, I had like a... Or maybe even before, I had like an agent. Uh, yeah. And just started going nuts, really. Yeah. So, uh, if you would look back at the young day... Uh, what would you have done differently? And what's the biggest lesson you've learned over the years? Um, wow. What would I have done differently? I mean, I guess everything I did le led to me being where I am now. Mm -hmm. I think there's probably a couple of tracks that I regret releasing, looking back, but that's about it. <laughs> what tracks? Um... Uh, like Masquerade and a couple of remixes I did I'm not really a fan of <laughs> Masquerade isn't that on the flip side of uh, Open Page no oh no it's a, just a single on its own it's got DJ Die uh, Interface and William Cartwright remix on the flip ah uh, it was just a tune that I made when I was having like big writer's block and I thought I'd try something else and then for some reason <laughs> Metalheads wanted to release it but yeah I'm not, a, I'm not a massive fan of that tune but you know I think any artist has like a kind of a difficult relationship with their music and their catalogue in, in, in general anyway it's not not just one track you know it can be like a snare drum in one track or like a mix down or whatever it can be any, anything really Yeah, so, yeah I, I don't know if I would change much. Um, it's hard to say, but there's a couple of records I wouldn't have bought. <laughs> you know. So, so what? What's typical for the sound of Lensman? How did it change from the early days of producing to now? Um, I guess a certain feel for musicality. Well. There's two questions there. Should I answer what the Lensman sound is first and how it yeah, changed yeah, later? Okay. Sure. For, I mean, for me, I always try and write music from from my heart, you know. Um, so I'd like to say that it's got some kind of emotion and depth to it. Um, and I guess that over the years, something that I've tried to develop more is my kind of link with hip-hop because even though I stopped rapping uh, I still love hip-hop a lot and it was very very important for 
shaping my kind of musical vision. And I think, you know, when you're a teenager, the music that you're into and you dive deeply into kind of stays with you forever. You know, no, nothing's going to... Um, nothing's going to kind of have the same kind of impact as the music that you're listening to as a teenager. So hip-hop and jungle was kind of that for me. Uh, and I tried to incorporate those two things and try and do that in a tasteful way where it's not contrived. Uh, and it just... Because I do feel it's like they're cousins to me, musically speaking. So I do feel they can be um, incorporated and and they can work together and it can be done in a way where it doesn't sound cheesy or gimmicky, you know? And I feel like that's something that I've managed to master way more as time went on. And I've, I've had, like, different, um, you know... I've experimented into different sounds over the years. Like, the sound of my first album is very different to the stuff that I'm doing now. Looks a lot more synth-driven, maybe, and I, I do love synths in music, but I try and... I try and do, like, the hip-hop thing a bit more these days. Yeah. And it's just also certain musicality that I've learned, you know, uh, and just production skills in general, I guess, over time. But I'm still searching and still learning a lot, you know. I'm, like, as an engineer, I'm not very good, really. I, I kind of feel like my strength is more in the musical side of things yeah. and, the, and the ideas. I mean, you, I think you can never stop learning. There's always something new to learn, right? Yeah, always, always. So, uh, answer to your que to my question: What's typical Lensman sound? Is the deeper musical drum and bass? Is it is it liquid? Do you consider yourself liquid? No, or so soulful drum and bass. <laughs> soulful like. drum and bass. Okay. I think that yes. describes it more. <laughs> and also with a strong influence from hip hop, particularly nineties. New York hip-hop. Okay, can you name a track that really... that has a link with it? A clear link to New York hip-hop? Uh, I mean, there's loads of them. Like, uh, for example, the Children of Zeus remix. Um, you know, it's like a... it's kind of like a chopped piano hook, for example, is, is to me, is like a clear link to hip-hop. You know, like stuff that Pete Rock would do, or RZA, or Premier, or Q-Tip, or like, yeah, loads of producers from then. Um, and there's, I mean, there's like, I'd have to look at my own catalogue. <laughs> I, I can't remember the songs, but, you know, I'd say like, for example, the Bobby album's very strongly uh, inspired by hip hop and and, you know, through hip-hop I obviously discovered like a massive world of music because they all sampled music and I discovered a lot of stuff through that like jazz and uh, soul and funk and 
yeah, all, all kinds of stuff. So... Is, is drummer yeah. bass the only platform? Is it enough for you for your creativity, or do you need? Do you also make other kinds of music? Do you make hip hop? Or I've tried, but I'm so critical of it that I could never really. I never really feel like I can nail it. You know, in hip hop, the hip hop that I listen to now is so lo-fi. Yeah, is it's often it doesn't even have it, like drums. It's just a loop. You know. It's very lo-fi, and I kind of feel like that is not um, as a as a drummer bass producer. That's not necessarily a challenge in, on a production level. You know, obviously the challenge is is finding the right tone and finding the sick sample, and I could find enjoyment in that. But I feel like yeah, those beats are so lo-fi that. I would kind of struggle with uh, leaving it alone <laughs> and the simplicity of it, if you know what I mean. Which is also a skill, and, and like getting the right tone and balance of everything. But it's not something I, I, I think it would be possible for me. So I have experimented with different genres a lot over time, but I'm never really happy with it. I guess I'm never really happy with drum and bass either, but, you know, you've got, you got to release something. <laughs> I, yeah, that's the only point, it's just done. And are you happy with the North Quarter? I'm very happy with the North Quarter, yeah. yeah. And when did it start, the, the dream of having a label? Did you always have that dream? When I was about 15, I guess. Yeah? Well, not necessarily a label, but I just remember being in high school with Dan Stizo and, you know, we were both really into this hip-hop stuff. And when we started going to, like, the Bova Bow, which is, like, <laughs> the, the elder part, uh, half of um, the school, when you got to start going to, like, the, the later years... Like the senior years. Yeah, the senior years. There used to be, like, a cafeteria, and this is during break time. And when the school bell went for break time... You know, Dan Steezer and I would run downstairs to this cafeteria and there was like a little DJ booth in there where you could play tapes and we would just hold down this this tape deck, you know, so we could play music that we liked to other people. You know, we'd be, like, be playing like NWA or <laughs> Mob Deep or Wu-Tang Clan or whatever. How did the school think about that? Uh, that area, that cafeteria thing was kind of just like a, a student zone. So ah, there okay. Was, there were no, like, uh, teachers there. A bit more secluded. Yeah. Um, you know, but we, we already had, like, that drive to, to play music that we loved to other people. And I feel like that's kind of just what a label is, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So, obviously, uh, I, I didn't, yeah, I didn't know we could ever have a label then. So fast forward to maybe the early years of me being a, releasing records. I, I guess I started thinking about it sometimes, but I never really felt like the time was right. And I felt like if I'm going to do it, I want to be an established artist. I want it to have an impact. I don't just want to be, you know, someone that's, yeah, that's kind of just still on the rise and doesn't really have many people and attempts a label and it's going yeah it's not going to do anything and it's just going to be a failure so I just decided to wait and also the time when I broke through 
It was a time when hardly anyone was doing new labels. You know, you had like a couple of camps, like Shogun Audio, Metalheads, um, yeah, Ram Records, whatever. There were lots of labels and they had artist signs, but there weren't that many artists starting new labels. I think that a massive influx of new labels had happened in the early 2000s, you know, when you had like, I guess, Solar, Signature, Defunct. Um, man, my brain's not really working, but yeah, I kind of felt like that had happened then. And then, yeah, after I found out I was going to be a dad, which was in, I found out probably springtime 2015. That's when I started thinking more seriously about my future. You know, I'd done my album for Metalheads. And I was like, I need, you know, I need to do something now. If I'm not going to do it now, I'm never going to do it. Um, I went, talked talk to Goldie about it, and he was really supportive. And he, um, that's when the kind of the plan was hatched. Did he help um, you set it up, or no? He didn't help me set it up, but he was supportive and kind of gave me his blessing. And mm. you know, he called me up and started started uh, suggesting a couple of names and stuff and then he was talking about how Creative Source wasn't around anymore and you know kind of felt like something like that was needed and then yeah I just started writing the music you know and then uh, start of 2016 I wrote um, uh, the Children of Zeus remix and you know by like yeah they kindly let me release that as the first track on the label and I didn't have the name for the label until you know the deadline for the artwork and uh, and, the, and the designers were like hassling me for the name because otherwise they wouldn't be able to to come up with artwork in time and uh yeah, I named it after the area I was living in when I was first introduced to, to hip-hop and jungle because that was kind of like my awakening in terms of music, I guess. And, and uh, uh, yeah, it's a... Uh, and it cool. was rather more successful than I thought it would be. Yeah? Were you yeah. insecure? I was, quite, I was yeah. quite worried about it, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, it was... A, Yes, it felt like a big undertaking and uh, something completely new. And, you know, as I say, not many people starting their labels. Alex Perez started his uh, probably six months or less before I did. But I had already kind of decided and had set the stuff in motion before I knew he was doing it. So it just felt like a completely new venture you know um, but I kind of felt like we were part of this new wave of a lot of artists starting starting labels all of a sudden yeah yes yeah, something that's taken off the last few years right there's yeah. labels popping yeah. off everywhere yeah yeah you mentioned creative source is yes. the North Quarter in a way the new creative source I don't know 
Um, but it's definitely inspired by Creative Source to a degree. I mean, I used to love the sleeves. And for me, you know, like the sleeves is for the North Quarter don't, they're not really trying to emulate Creative Source artwork, but the importance of artwork, you know, is very, uh, it's very much there. So, I mean, I feel like for me, Fabio, and you definitely put me on the spot with that quick fire one, but yeah, Fabio and LTJ Brookham are definitely massive influences to me in general. Um, you know, Solar's an influence as well, of course. I think when I when the label started, I was gonna, I was, I was probably had envisioned it as being a bit more one-dimensional in sound. I was just, I felt like there was a gap in the soulful side of drum and bass, but. Over time, I came to realise that, you know, diversity keeps things interesting and it also allows artists to, to truly express themselves because, uh, you know, someone like FD or Sattle, you know, they make all kinds of music. Um, they make all kinds of genres, actually, but especially Sattle, but they also make light and dark drum and bass. And if I'm only going to be releasing... Um, their kind of soul stuff and I'm working with them long term then I'm holding them back and I'm yeah. curbing the, curbing their creativity so I felt like I shouldn't be doing that and then I was kind of just thinking back about drum and bass when when I was getting into it and you know you'd go and see Groove Rider and he'd play all kinds of stuff in one set and on, on one night you could hear such a diverse set of music and I kind of miss that, you know, and I think that I like the idea of people going to a North Quarter event and they're not just going to hear five hours of similar sets, but they're going to hear, hear all kinds of drum and bass music. Yeah, so... Yeah, you recently released uh, the first Jungle release on the North Quarter, right? The Sam Binary release. Yeah, I guess that was more like an old, uh, old intelligent... Yeah. jungle um, but I mean I don't know we released like a myth release that had like a, a couple of jungle stuff things yeah, on there you're right. for sure as well yeah you're right I guess this is more like a um, a throwback kind of sounding thing mm-hmm. yeah do you see the label as a family? yeah for sure yeah I mean that was definitely inspired by my time at Metalheads um, we, because Metalheads is definitely a label that's built around family, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was something that I learned there. And it's it's just great to have like all these artists being friends and supporting each other, and it just strengthens the whole the whole thing, you know. Everyone's kind of trying to amplify each other. Is that something that that it looks like from the outside looking in? Because for me, it's hard to know how people perceive, you know. But that's just something that is like a philosophy for me, for sure. What are the criteria to be a, a North Quarter artist? Just make sick music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you need to have... Uh, it's got to be something that... 
that kind of strikes me, you know. If if you if you sound like someone else, then it might not be as interesting to me. Um, I kind of I like it when the team's kind of balanced and everyone's bringing something different to the table that no one else does. What's the so, current balance? What do what does everybody bring to the table now? Settle, uh, submorphix, FD. Well. That was very versatile. Um, he makes everything. He makes everything. Yeah. And he makes it all really well. Uh, and he's very creative. He's very prolific. He writes, you know, he writes on the same level as Caliber. He's always got tracks done. You know, he's also the only guy that plays almost only his own music in his sets. Um... Yeah, he's got like strong kind of techno and dub techno influences, especially in his more experimental work. I'd like to say uh, Red Eyes is just like it's like my soul brother. So he just like does soulful drum and bass like no one else for me. Um, who else were you talking about? FD. FD does rollers and like yeah, bassline rollers. So he's And it's kind of like, yeah, he's, he's got like funky, funky future funk bassline rollers. That's where he's at his strongest for me. Um, he's also very versatile, but I kind of feel like, you know, when he does like a, a, a funky or high tech funk bassline roller, he's unmatched, you know. Mm -hmm. Do you do the NR yourself for the label? Do you have other people yeah. helping you? No, I'm very. I do pretty much everything myself, which <laughs> is unfortunate at times. Uh, no, I've actually I've got uh, someone helping me now. Um, he was an intern before, and now he's helping the label uh, after his internship. But yeah, I do the A and R in myself, and I'm pretty, pretty. Uh, deeply involved with it. I try and give people constructive feedback. Um, you know, I can be quite critical, and I'm sure that's annoying to people, but I'm just trying to make... Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to be a perfectionist. I'm trying to make people be the best they can be. Mm -hmm. um, I don't. I try not to be too intrusive. I try and let people do... The creative process themselves, but I do give advice and suggestions. I don't feel like artists should feel like they have to do anything, but I do give them ideas that they can then, you know, decide what, what they're going to do with. Yeah. And is there room for more artists at uh, the North Quarter, or is this is there a maximum? It's ba barely, honestly, because of time and you know release schedule i don't want to release too much i i, I even feel that like maybe in the last two years we've been re releasing slightly too much so i might cut down a little bit um so it's like release schedule wise i want to have space for people to to release music without having to wait a long time and it's also label nights you know if we had like 20 artists then I'm not going to be able to offer all those 20 people 
regular gigs. So, yeah, there is a maximum. There isn't an exact number in terms of a maximum, but it's more like a feeling. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you are the biggest artist uh, on the label. Uh, will you stay the biggest artist on the label? I hope not. I hope not. I mean, I feel Sour especially has all the tools necessary to be huge. For sure. Um, yeah, I'm ho I hope that all the artists on the label get bigger than me. Because that, that's kind of what we're trying to do. We're trying to... I'm trying to work with people to... to get... Yeah, to get to a better place, you know? I think that's that's the goal. Um, and if if the artists get bigger, the label get big, gets bigger. So it's never really a negative for me. Yeah. So you see yourself more on the background in the future? In, in the future, yeah. I mean, I'm getting older. <laughs> You're 44 now? <laughs> <laughs> Do I have to say yes or no? Confrontation. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm 44. Uh, you know, I still love DJing, but yeah, I'm a family man as well. And I also really love a &R in. So who knows what the future will bring, but I do hope that all the artists on the label, you know, achieve that level of success that I've, I've been lucky enough to achieve. Um, okay. Uh, and looking at the Dutch drum and bass scene, um, you mentioned you've been in the Dutch drum and bass scene from the 90s. Um, yeah, if you look back uh, on those uh, almost 30 years, how has the scene changed, <laughs> it's changed over here? Uh, I mean, it's changed really, like loads, you know. I mean, if the first five years I was kind of trying to DJ, I didn't really know anyone. Um, so I wouldn't say I was necessarily active in the scene um, I mean, the only constant for the last nearly 20 years is Cheeky Monday. <laughs> I, yeah, I guess it is. Yeah. You know, they're still going. Um, I mean, how has it changed? I kind of feel like back when I was first starting to DJ outside of Leiden and I was first meeting everyone, the scene was more rooted much more in the underground um, than it is now and it was looking towards the UK more than it is now. Um, I mean, I don't necessarily feel as connected to brands that are like, you know, there's brands in, in Holland that are hugely successful. I'm not necessarily that connected to them, both musically and just personally, but I'm, I'm respectful of the success. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of feel like an outsider in my own scene in Holland, if you know what I mean. Yeah, you're just doing your uh, own thing. Yeah, and you know, to be fair to the Dutch scene, I've always kind of looked towards the UK because all the labels that I had ambitions to sign to were based there. So um, that was kind of my dream. Uh, and then back back in the days when I was playing here a lot, I had a lot more connection with the people here, you know, yeah. with with the promoters, with the other DJs, the MCs, the uh, the crowds, 
you know, all the, yeah, the people that were like regular, regulars. And then I guess dubstep became huge. When was it? Like the mid 2000s or the? Yeah. Kind of towards like 2000, 2006, seven. Yeah. And at the same time, I, I mean, that killed off a lot of promoters and a lot of people going out and at the same time they were probably feeling like they were getting too old and <laughs> <laughs> having families and I was having like my success was starting to break through in the UK so I wasn't that focused on in, on Holland anymore and I was starting to play a lot more outside of Holland um, you know and I was never really booked much in Holland after breaking through internationally so yeah I don't know. I feel slightly disconnected is is how it's changed for me. But it's incredible how how big drum and bass is here now yeah, compared to how it used to be. Yeah, they they're able to do uh we're able to do twelve thousand uh attendance festivals here in the Netherlands. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, it's really crazy. It's very impressive. Yeah. You know? It's and mainly... I, I do feel Mainly liquid, I, liquid drum and bass. So, yeah, but it's not soulful drum and bass. Nah, no, for sure not. Sorry. Yeah, but I mean, because the, the, the Netherlands is known for hard and techy acts like Noise and Blacks and Empire. Yeah, you're. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I understand that you feel like an outcast compared to them. Yeah, it's, it's just I don't know. I'm, you know, I don't really get booked very much. I don't see people that often. Uh, I'm just doing my own thing and I'm not happy doing it, you know? Yeah. I wouldn't have it any other way. Sometimes I feel like it, it would be nice to have more contact with people in the scene now, but it's just a, it's a new generation. And looking forward, this um, um, inclusivity is a big topic. Um, yeah. Um, how do you look at that? Are there a lot of female producers that send you demos? Do you see something changing in the scene now? I think things have been changing. I mean, obviously, the scene had become very white, middle class over the last... Yeah, since... since In the last 20 years or so, I would say. Which is something that I... Yeah, I, I feel is sad, especially considering the roots of jungle drum and bass and how diverse it was to start with, you know? I think the sound of the music has definitely um, contributed to the audience changing. And I wish it was more diverse, you know, and it's, I definitely feel a page has been turned there, um, but there's still a long way to go as well. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I get some demos by um, female producers, but not loads. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of people working hard right now, which is great to see. A lot of people having great success as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, talking about producing, you recently released uh, Wonder Years with uh, Red Eyes. Yeah. Um, how did you meet him? When, uh, how did that come to be? I met Red Eyes when we booked him uh, at Fever, which is a night that... I used to do with Scar and Dan Steezer, which I actually completely skipped in my little uh, <laughs> biography. Uh, yeah, for, so from like 
2004 to about 2009 or 10, uh, we used to do this night called Fever in LVC, which was about soulful drum and bass, basically, mm -hmm. because I, I felt that the um, the mu musical connection between Moss cut off and cuts off and myself wasn't ideal. They liked heavier stuff. I just wanted to do the soulful thing. And yeah, Scar was a guy that I'd met from going to Killer Cuts and we used to do uh, these nights. Um, and yeah, one of the nights was Red Eyes and Crags and Parallel Forces and it was 2006 during the World Cup. Um, and there was a game, there were games on and it was the hottest day of the year so far and no one came to the club. So everyone was just outside drinking, binge drinking, watching football and they just never made it to the club. But we had a great time anyway and, you know, I really connected to all those guys actually. Um, and I think we went to watch uh, Holland Ivory Coast in Amsterdam the next day. Nice. Uh, and we just kept in touch and he was like back then you know I was kind of a nobody when it came to producing and Red Eyes was established he had stuff on Creative Source on Inner Ground on uh, Bingo and he was like really kind of open and he's like yeah let's make some music and we just started making tunes and you know a couple of years later we had like a, a joint release on Integral and we've just been friends ever since. Um, and I just knew that, you know, when I started North Quarter, he was one of the guys that I, I definitely was going to have involved. Uh, and he was the first guy to release on the label other than myself. Nice. Uh, you know, and he's done two albums and, God, an EP, loads of, loads of tracks and, like, compilations. Yeah, this is your first release together, right? This is our first extended release together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so what I meant. We had yeah. a thing on, yeah, we had a thing on Integral and like various tunes over the years. But yeah, this is like the first four tracker that we did together. So how did you approach this release, uh, theme wise? Who started the first tune? Was it you or him? Um, God, I think it was the the first tune was a, a track that didn't make his self portraits album. Okay. But it completely changed and developed differently. You know, we've been talking about this project probably for about since the start of the label, I would say. And we just never really came around, got around to it. We just talked a lot about it and mm -hmm. never did anything. Uh, and then I think, when was it? Probably about April. I was just like, right, someone's got to take charge here. <laughs> Um, and he just, he, you know, he he's always got loads of sketches. He had a few sketches. I had some sketches. We just made a shared folder. And we just started working on the tracks. And we probably had about three other things that didn't make the cut. Um, not because they were bad, but just because we made a certain selection of music. Yeah. And, he, yeah, his... His... Like one of the, like the track that turned out to be uh, Buster's was a tune that was scheduled or was in the pot for the Self Portraits album, and then I started working on it. Completely changed it. Like the whole riff is different, bassline is different, everything about the tune is different. But it just started. Yeah, it started from his sketch, and I think 
the only tune that didn't massively evolve from something else was um, Wet Like Water. That kind of stayed very similar to the initial idea, but all the other tracks completely changed. Nice. Um, did you spend it, sorry? Did you spend time together in the studio, or was it all remote? It was all remote. Yeah. Yeah, we both have kids, um, busy schedules, and we live, you know, far apart. So it's not that easy to do it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know. We just sent stuff, like we both uh, work in Ableton, so it's easy That's to easy, send yeah. stuff back and forth. Yeah, It's the power of the internet, right? Exactly. And I mean, it, that was already already something that we used to do. Like we both used to work in Reason, uh, and we used to send stuff to each other through AIM back then. AOL Instant Messenger, yeah, yeah. which was like the, the, the big social network before MySpace or Facebook or whatever. Um, that was kind of the drum and bass networking thing. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we we're, we're very close, like in terms of music, uh, in what we like and what we listen to. Uh, so it's it's easy working with him because we we're always kind of on the same page. It was never much of a, any discussion about. Um, directions of tunes or anything like that it once it was more like the challenge was more in just you know taking the time to do it and, and <laughs> i guess we're both slightly lazy yeah so what do you admire in, in red eyes as a producer um his attention to detail he like just a very kind of natural He's got a very natural soul to his music, I think, and it's very. He's got beautiful um, ambient ideas, which he showcased on the Self Portraits album. You know, every track was followed by like an ambient interlude, and you know, he does hip hop the way I wish I could do it. So he's got a certain feel, like a soul to his music that I sometimes wish I had it's very very um, effortless is very effortless in his approach I think it's very natural to him yeah and I envy that for sure hmm. uh, we've got something to look forward to we've got a North Quarter night during Amsterdam dance event on the 20th of October in Melkweg um, yes. is having your own label night in Amsterdam important for you it is important to me yeah it's just Because it gives me that presence in Holland, which is something that I do. I, I mentioned it before. Sometimes I feel a bit disconnected from the scene here, um, and it's something that I kind of wish I didn't have. You know, I do miss those old days, and I feel like having my night and a night here. Um, it's just like playing to a home audience you know i it's very rare for me for example to have friends come into to see me dj and if i play in amsterdam i have like a I bring people out it's, it's just a nice vibe for me in general and i feel like you know the label's based here so it's is yeah it should it should be it should be here you know it should yeah. be in a club here i think so 
So and how do you look back at the previous North Quarter Nights and your dates are curated by Lensman at Paradiso? Three yeah. sold out nights. Yeah. Crazy sold out. Yeah, it was how do you look back at that? Yeah, they're beautiful memories. I I, I guess they were you know, the the great thing about them is and that's something that my vision's always been in music is I don't I don't really want to compromise my vision and we didn't have to compromise anything in terms of lineup to get those people in so that makes it extra sweet yeah. you know it's like yeah when when we did uh, the the curated by in the big room of paradiso you know those are all artists that I love that was a and sick lineup as well yeah but you know we didn't have to everyone's always like we, yeah we need like a uh, yeah, Holland's Holland's heavy drum and bass is big here. I guess it is, but we can also fill a room with soulful drum and bass. Yeah. And we did. And that night proved it. Yeah. yeah. I think, was it the last time Caliber played in the Netherlands? Like, I don't know. Mm, <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, maybe a, a Liquidity Festival. Yeah, mm. maybe. I don't know. Um, and we're moving uh, from Paradiso to Melkweg. That's also yes. a big and important club in Amsterdam music history. What's your yes. co- connection with the club? Uh, I've got a long-standing connection with Melkweg from going to see hip-hop concerts when I was just a young teenager. I saw quite a few shows there. I think I got tickets for Old Dirty Bastards and he didn't turn up. So that I didn't actually go to that one, but I was still kind of <laughs> gutted about that. Uh, but I saw many others there. And I also saw drum and bass acts there before I knew anyone in Holland that was into it. Uh, I went to see Dillinger and Brian G in 98 or 99. Uh, and I went to see Ronnie Sides there. You know, this is all before I knew anyone in Holland that was into drum and bass. And, you know, over the years, man, I've I've been there so often. You know, still seeing hip-hop shows, seeing other shows. I think they used to do the Dutch Drum and Bass Awards. <laughs> oh, shit, that's a long time ago. Did you win the Dutch Drum and Bass Awards? I, I don't think I won anything, but the audacity of doing Dutch Drum and Bass Awards in like 2004 or something. <laughs> you could probably do them now. But yeah, it was quite fun. I think Foltec played. Foltec, yeah. I had yeah. a lot of them once. I think we were nominated with our Rotterdam bass parties for the Dutch Drum and Bass Awards, but doing soulful drum and bass, we didn't win. Of course. Yeah, I think <laughs> I, might have, I might have been nominated once or twice. I don't think I won anything. But we don't do it for the awards. No, man. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's an iconic venue. So uh, many great nights there. Uh, yeah, for sure. And I'm looking forward to, to doing it. And like the up room is really cool as well. I saw Mick Jenkins there. Okay. And uh, that was a very cool, intimate show. So I'm looking forward to that. You know, I. I love being close to the audience and I feel like the soulful drum and bass is kind of suited for that that room especially. Um, so yeah. 
looking forward to. And what can people expect show. from that night? Well, there's a big lineup, so uh, back to backs. There will be some back to backs, yeah. Um, we thought it would be a cool idea to do saddle back to back with FD as yeah. Nin zero zero zero. And I'll go back to back with Red Eyes and make it extra soulful. And then we got Vanity Roxanne, who is a DJ from the Netherlands, who's just, yeah, she really has been supportive of the label, just gets UK bass music and has a strong background in hip hop, which is really cool because it just kind of fits in really well with the label uh, story, you know. And then we got Submorphix doing his, uh, his hazy smoked out. Uh, Detroit Detroit take on drum and bass music yep the the man the the, the myth the myth <laughs> <laughs> let's not forget the MCs eh oh shit yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're gonna hate me for that uh, of course we got uh, T-Man and Fox both coming out of Manchester uh, they both used to be in levels they're both legends they're both under uh Appreciated Don's in terms of versatility, you know, and in terms of stage presence and voice and skills. I mean, uh, I guess you'll find out on uh, on, the, on the 20th at ADE, but they're both super sick MCs. And, you know, the whole hip-hop connection and, 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 you know, like the roots of drum and bass in general, to me... You know, MCs are are vital to any any night really. I would, I, I, if it was up to me, I'd never do a set without an MC because I just feel that it's part of the culture for one, and it's also like a channel between the audience and the DJ. Yeah. So, so yeah, to to me, it's very important. One can't go without the other. Yeah. So yeah, we're nearing the end of this uh, conversation, slowly but surely. Um, I've got one last question for you. Um, okay. Do you have the chance to to create the last album on earth, just one album? Uh, you can invite or produce uh, with anybody you like, both <laughs> dead or alive. Wow. Who would you ask as a vocalist, co-producer, uh, on drums, uh, anything you can think of when it comes to music? Um, and also, what would you name this supergroup? What would I name the supergroup? Uh -huh. Damn, okay. Well, uh, a couple of names. Erica Badu. Um, uh, Jill Scott Heron. Um... John Coltrane, uh, Clyde Stubblefield, The Rizza, um, Prodigy from Mob, Be Mob Deep. How many? How many more can I get? As many as you'd like. Fella Cooty. Any producers? Rizza. Okay. Uh, any drum and bass acts you want to have on the team as well? Yeah, me. Any <laughs> <laughs> um, vocalists, singers? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. Er- I, I named a few. Erica Badu, mm. Prodigy from Mob Deep. Uh, D'Angelo could he could join as well. Um, I said Jill Scott Heron as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sade. Ah, yeah, Sade, of course. And what's Sade. the name of this supergroup? The Beautiful Struggle. <laughs> yeah. I like that. I like that. I like that. Yeah. Thanks, Diane, for this uh, conf- open conversation. Uh, we got to know you a bit better. Um, do you, is there anything you want to plug before we end this podcast? Uh, no. Just uh, check out everything on the North Quarter if you haven't already, but you probably have if you're listening to this. So, yeah, just come to the party on ADE. Yeah. 20th of October. We got myself, Red Eyes, uh, T Man Fox, Vanity Roxanne, Submorphix. Red Eyes, did I say that yeah, already? Subtle. <laughs> subtle. FD, subtle. Yeah. Uh, Everybody's there. Some, some great collection of music. Is there anything else in the pipeline for the, the North Quarter coming up? There always is, but <laughs> I'm never telling. Okay. So keep an eye on your socials, you'd say. Of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks. Enjoyed the chat. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, man. Cheers. You're tuned in to the Curated by Podcasts.